very little to do with the words. Amen. And it's what the song is about. Amen. It really, really counts. Certainly we should be looking with panted breath for the return of the Lord and uh, for Him to show up and to rescue us. Amen. You see, that's the way I look at the rapture. God is coming to rescue us because we are in captivity. We are bound by this old nature of sin and we're bound in a world of ungodliness and, and uh, the things that are going on in the world around us just make us want to, to cringe and uh, to cry out. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come. I am ready. Come, Jesus, come. That has become my... Uh, favorite song of the past several months. Amen. I listen to it every morning when I get up. You uh, need to listen to that. And uh, beg God. Beg Him. Come. Come, Lord. We are, we are so tired. We've been waiting so long. We are looking forward to Your return. God, that You might come and rescue us from this place of burden, this place of pain and heartache and sorrow and toil. Well, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel. That's in the Old Testament. That sounds like an Old Testament book, don't it? Ezekiel. We're going to be looking at chapter 18. What I want to talk to you about for the remainder of our time is personal responsibility personal responsibility. That means that my life is not somebody else's responsibility. That I can't look at uh, anybody else. Anybody. You know, I started to just start pulling a few people off the shelf like my dad or my mom or, you know, the people in my family who uh, brought me up, raised me, if you will. And some of the the input that they had into my heart, into my home, into my family, into my life, into my my mental attitude and dispositions, all of those things. You know, there, there's a great melting pot that goes on in all of our lives when we're born into this world at a certain time era. Uh, you know, the 1950s for me, and and then others in the 1980s or whenever. And all of those things play a part in our lives. But ultimately, all those are our influences in our lives. And what's the old song that I used to hear? And the saying that came from it, every tub has to sit on its own bottom. That we are ultimately responsible for our own lives, our own decisions, our own sins, our own destinies. All of those things lie in, in our laps and ours alone. I can go back to Adam and Eve and look at, at the influence that Adam and Eve had in their sons' lives, Seth and Cain and Abel, and of course Cain killed Abel, and now you only have uh, Cain and Seth, and you understand the difference that... Those boys were, well, they were raised under the same tutelage, under the same parents, with the same rules, the same laws, the same God, the same environment. Everything was the same in their life. And yet they turned out so differently. 
Have you had children in your life like that? I know I have. We have children, and our kids are as different as daylight and dark. There are a lot of similarities because a lot of things that we pumped into their lives, into their heads, into their hearts, you know, they stuck. But then they discarded, you know, it's kind of like eating watermelon. You swallow the watermelon, spit out the seeds. And, and people do the same thing. We, we take the environment in and the stuff that we like and that we're drawn to. We hold on to those things and the rest of it we spit out. And then it forms us into the people that we are. Well, the nation of Israel as a whole is being looked at as an individual person here in the eyes of God and he, he gives Ezekiel this message for this person, uh, Israel. You know, Jacob was named Israel, and then the nation of Israel became the nation rather than the person. But uh, God charges the people of Israel as one with misrepresenting some facts. What are the facts? Well, he he tells them, that the prophets are, are prophesying and the priests are preaching and the people are giving out commandments and word to the people that I have not given them. They're telling them of a, a, of a proverb that is not even in the Bible. You can't find it in Scripture. He says... What mean ye that ye use this proverb? And the proverb says this. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. Now that's in verse 2 of chapter 18. You look at verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came unto me again. The word of the Lord came unto me again. So God was speaking to the nation of Israel through a prophet named Ezekiel. And he says that God told me again, what mean ye that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And I believe that it's not a proverb that was meant to be used for Israel, but that the prophets and priests had taken a proverb outside of the word of God, outside of the counsel of God, and was using it now and directing it towards the nation of Israel when God had not given them that permission or that commandment. There's a lot of people who preach a lot of stuff these days that ain't in the Bible. There's a lot of people who don't preach a lot of stuff these days that is in the Bible. Whether one is worse than the other... I don't know. I think they're both wrong. I think they're both sin. And ultimately, every tub is going to sit on its own bottom. Every preacher standing behind a pulpit is going to give an account of his life as to what he pours into the heart, into the head, into the mind, into the life of the families that God has put underneath him as a shepherd. That I am one of those shepherds and the world is full of shepherds that are saying, Thus saith the Lord, as we stand behind a pulpit, and what we are saying is, oh, listen, listen, I know you haven't come here to listen to me. You don't want to know what I think. You don't want to know what I believe. You don't want to know what I say. What, what you want to know is what the Word of God says. So I stand behind the pulpit, and I preach, thus saith the Lord. And yet, there are men around the world doing the same thing. And there are so many preaching different things concerning the same passage of Scripture. 
these things ought not so to be. And yet, hence, you find out that humanity, that the old nature, human nature, becomes involved in spiritual things, and now things fall apart, things go astray. And God is saying to the nation of Israel that there's a problem here. And it's not that the fathers have eaten sour grapes and that the children's teeth are set on edge. What, what does that mean? Well, that means that there's a hereditary influence. And that it is, it is great in our lives, in our homes, in our families. And, and we as fathers and mothers and, and, and people that influence others, we have an accountability for what it is that we pour into people's hearts and minds and lives. And I'm going to give an account of that. The Bible says, Be not many masters, knowing that ye shall receive the greater condemnation. Why am I going to be held more accountable than you? Because God has called me to pour into your heart and into your mind what the Word of God says. And that's why He gives a warning to everybody. Be not many masters. That means be not many teachers. Be not many ministers. Be not many people who are seeking after a pulpit or a podium to stand behind and, and tell other people what it is that God says. Because what God says is important. And if you get it wrong, then you're going to give an account for that. But the people that you give it to are not going to suffer because you gave it to them. Unless... They in and of themselves receive it, act on it, and apply it to their own lives. Certainly, I'm going to be held accountable what I teach you, but you're going to be held accountable to what you believe, what you accept as truth or not. That's why it's important for you not to only come on Sunday mornings and to listen to a, a, a sermon, a message, but that you come and let us reason together, iron sharpening iron, studying the Word of God, hiding it in our heart that we might not sin against God, living the life that God has called us to live, and knowing that we're living the life that God has called us to live, because we know what the Bible teaches that God expects from His people. Now I want you to take a, a look at... Some of these verses from verse 1 through verse 25. And uh, we're, gonna, we're just going to kind of take it slow as we go. And I want to hit some points uh, here. Um, and again, verse 2. What mean ye that you use this proverb concerning the land of Israel, saying the fathers have eaten sour grapes? In other words, the father has sinned. And now the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, the children are suffering. They're paying the consequence. They're paying a price because of their, their father's sins. God says, no, they're not. No, they're not. I'm not going to punish the child for what the father does. But if the father is pouring that into their life and they grow up and they follow after his actions and his teachings, then ultimately they will pay the price for themselves for what they do. My friend, I'm afraid that sometimes we allow, we allow ourselves to become our children's friends rather than our children's parents. Now, I got two grandkids here. I, I love them. I do. I would, I, I, I tell my, I would love to believe in my heart that I would die for them. But primarily, I am not their friend. I am their grandparent. 
And I want what's best for them, not what's expedient, not what's easy. I don't want to give them the easy path to success. Uh, I, I want them to work for everything that they get, that they earn it, that they learn what it takes to be a man, to be a woman of God, to live a life that brings glory and honor to Him and not to put the things of the world first in their life, but that they should put the things of God first in their life. And if I'm going to instill that in their hearts and their lives, then I can't just say it. I've got to live it. I've got to be it. I've got to do it. And let them see it and know it and understand the truth of it by example. Not just by what you say, but by what you do. You look again at verse 3. And it says, As I live, saith the Lord God, ye shall not have occasion anymore to use this proverb in Israel. In other words, stop it. Stop telling people that God is judging this group of people because of what that group of people did. Every tub is going to sit on its own bottom. Verse 4 says this, Behold, all souls are mine. What? Wait a minute. No, we're our own and we get to make a choice and we surrender our, or we don't our lives to the Lord. No, this says, Behold, all souls are mine. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Not the soul that sinneth not. Well, they didn't sin, but Daddy did. So Daddy's sin are now accredited to them. Well, I understand that Adam sinned, and because of Adam's sin, it passed on to all of mankind. For Adam's sin, and Adam's sin, for all of sin, to come short of the glory of God, there's none righteous, no, not one. Well, I understand the headship, the federal headship of Adam. That God judged him, and God judges the second Adam, Christ. You're either in Adam, or you're in Christ. And those are the only two people that God actually looks at and judges. But even though we are in Adam, the second Christ, and we are saved and children of God, we are still held accountable in this life for our sin, whether we be fathers or sons, mothers or daughters, whether we be children of God or not, we are still owned by God. And we're going to stand before him, the owner, uh, as, as a steward. See, I'm just a steward of this life that God has given me. And whether I wind up bending the knee and bowing the head and surrendering my heart and my life to Christ, I'm going to stand before the bema seat of Christ and give an answer to my life and my actions and the deeds that I've done in the body. Or whether I stand before the great white throne judgment, I'm going to stand before God and tell him why I had rejected Christ and why I deserve hell. But ultimately, every soul belongs to God. We'll stand before Him. Well, I don't believe in God. You don't believe in gravity. Jump off the Empire State Building. <laughs> Scream all the way to the concrete. I don't believe in gravity. It's not going to do you any good. Reality becomes reality when you meet the concrete. And when we stand before the Lord, of course, that's going to be reality. Each soul the Bible says there, is individually responsible to God. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Remember the title of the message, personal responsibility. I'm not personally responsible for what my daddy did. And boy, am I glad. But I bet he can say the same thing. I'm glad I'm not responsible for what my son did. 
But I'm certainly thankful for what Christ did. Amen. And that because of my faith and trust in Him, I am accredited His righteousness rather than my sinfulness. Not only does it say that in verse 4, where it says, Behold, all sins are, all souls are mine as the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine, and the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And then in verse 20, you look at this, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Usually when God repeats Himself, I want you to understand just how serious He is. He, he's, he's got a passion. And sometimes it's a burning, wrathful passion. And when he says the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Understand just how serious he is. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father. Neither shall the father bear the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of uh, the righteous shall be upon him. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. So. You back up to where we were in verse 4 and we'll continue in verse 5. Uh, verse 5 reads like this, But if a man be just and do that which is right and lawful and hath not eaten upon the mountains, neither lifted up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, neither hath defiled his neighbor's wife, neither hath come near to a menstruous woman, and hath not oppressed any, but hath restored to the debtor his pledge, he's paid his debt, hath spoiled none by vengeance, hath given his bread to the hungry, and hath covered the nakedness with a garment, and he hath not given forth upon usury, Neither hath taken any increase that hath withdrawn his hand from iniquity, hath executed true judgment between man and man, and hath walked in my statutes, kept my commandments, and hath kept my judgments to deal truly. He is just. He shall surely live, saith the Lord. So you realize all souls belong to God. Each soul is individually responsible to God. And the righteousness is the condition of life. That's what verse 5 and verse 9 both say. That if a man is just and do that which is lawful and right, and then again in verse 9, hath walked in my statutes and kept my judgments and deal truly, he is just and shall live. So righteousness equates life. How many of us are there's none righteous? No, not one. For all of sin comes short of the glory of God. The wage of sin is death. Now that's the next part of what I'm going to talk about. I, I, we're in Roman numeral 3 here where righteousness is the condition of life. But Roman numeral 4, the wickedness is the condition of death. You look at verse 20 again. It says, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. The wage of sin is death. But the gift of God is life. I want to look at uh, Romans for just a second, if you will. If you want to, you can flip there with me or take my uh, word for it. I'll try to be honest in my dealings with it. Well, those two pages are stuck together and nothing is going to 
separating. There it went. Thank you, Lord. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that walk in Jesus, walk in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life. You see, the Spirit of life, that is the righteousness. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made us free from the law of sin and death. Unrighteousness, death. Righteousness, life. Do you see the difference between the two? And in Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 5 and 9, it gives righteousness as the condition of life. But then in verse 20, it gave wickedness as the condition of death. Now, verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Verse 3, for, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son, in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit mind the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity, at war against God. For it cannot be subject to the law, neither indeed can be. So then, they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, living on the inside of him, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead. Because of sin. But the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. Do you understand the difference between the lifestyle, not of the rich and famous, but the lifestyle of the saved and the lost? That if we are saved, that lifestyle will be made manifest. It will be made known to the people around us by the power of the Holy Spirit of God living on the inside of us because we have been declared righteous and the life of Christ will be made manifest or seen clearly and plainly in our lives. I don't have to worry about what my daddy did. Or that my mama was an alcoholic walking down the road at 2 o'clock in the morning drunk, got hit by a car. You see, she, she paid that price for her sin. From what I can tell from the life that I remember her living, she's probably still reaping the consequence of a life not well lived. A life of unrighteousness rather than righteousness. You look again at verse 20, and it says, The soul that sinneth it shall die. The son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, neither father the bear the iniquity of the son. <clears throat> Of the righteous, for the righteous shall be upon him. His righteous uh, shall be upon him. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him. And the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. Now I'm just saying, and it's not really hard to understand. That a man, whatsoever man soweth. That is what he reaps. We, we reap what we sow. We get back what we plant. It's the law of the harvest. You plant a seed in the ground. What do you expect to come back? Well, I don't know. What kind of seed was it? 
Was it corn? Was it soybeans? Was it cotton? Well, if it's soybean, you're not expecting cotton to come back, are you? No. If it's corn, you're not expecting soybeans. And not only do you expect to get what you sow, if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap to the flesh. If you sow to the Spirit, you're going to reap to the Spirit. Those are are biblical words. That's Bible doctrine. But you're not only going to get what you sow, you're not going to get what you sow when you sow it. There's a law of the harvest that says you've got to wait. It's not coming back at you right when you do it. Oh, well, I got away with that. No, you don't know that. Just because you sowed something to the flesh and the axe didn't fall immediately, you think, oh, I got away with that one. There's a harvest time that comes later than the sowing or the planting time. You don't reap when you sow. Oh, and by the way, you may get what you sow, but you don't get as much of it as you sowed. You get more. When you plant one seed, you're expecting a head full of corn to come back. Oh no. A whole stalk with a whole bunch of ears from one seed in the ground. Hundreds of times more than what it was that we planted. We reap back to ourselves. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. And he'll reap it later and he'll reap more of it than he ever wanted to begin with. You look again at verse 20. And you see that sin and death are inseparable. You, you know what I found? That, that sin is a killer. Sin is a killer. It, it kills everything that it comes into contact with. It, it, it kills... It, it can kill your health. You smoke, you drink, you, you run the road, you cry, you do all the things that I did as an ignorant, stupid young man. And I'm still reaping some of the consequences of my health because of what I did when I was young before I met Christ. Sin can kill your finances. It makes you make wrong decisions, bad decisions, get you into places that you wished you'd have never gone and cost you. It can cost you your marriage. It can ultimately it costs you your life. It can cost you your very soul. The wage of sin. It's not only physical death, but spiritual death. And we're separated from God for an eternity because of our sin and the lifestyle choices that we, we make. That's what it says in verse 20. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Sin, die. The soul that sins, dies. Now we're not talking about individual sins. For all of things come true of the glory of God, there's none righteous, no, not one. That's talking about a lifestyle of sinfulness, not just an individual sin. But even saints are sinners. Not all sinners are saints, but I, as a saint, still sin. Does that mean that I'm going to die? Well, yes, once. It's appointed unto man once to die. That's a physical death. But even though I sin from time to time, because I am a sinner, I hate my sin. Do you? Do you hate your sin or do you love it? 
I put something on Facebook this morning when I got up and made coffee. I just stuck a little ditty out there with a fireball behind it, some hearts or something. It says, is going to church enjoyable to you? Or do you suffer it? Uh, I go because I feel like I have to. If I didn't feel like I had to, I wouldn't do it. If I didn't think God was going to punish me, then I'd get in trouble. You see, the question boils down to, do you love him or not? Do, do I love him more than I love the world? And if I love the world more than I love God, then I really don't love God at all. If I'm more interested in the things of the flesh rather than the things of the spirit, then do I really have an intimate love relationship with the Spirit, with the Spirit of God. Does He live on the old things have passed away, all things are new, am I a new creation in Christ Jesus? If not, he that hath not the Spirit of God is none of His. That's what that said in Romans chapter 8 a while ago. It's very, very simple to stick these things together and to understand what it is that God is saying. That sin is a killer and it kills everything that it touches. And if you don't confess and repent and fall out of love with your sin, in love with Christ, then ultimately... Sin will destroy you. It will destroy you. Doesn't mean that it'll destroy everything that you have in this world. Sometimes those things are left in order that you might think everything's okay until you step across that threshold of death and you stand before God. It goes on to say in verse 21 through 23, but if the wicked will turn from his sins, isn't that something? If the wicked will turn from his sins that he hath committed and keep all my statutes and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgression that he hath committed shall not be mentioned unto him. In his righteousness, he that hath done uh, that he hath done, he shall live. Have I any pleasure at all in the that the wicked should die? Saith the Lord God. And, and not that he should return from his ways and live. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. You know, there's a couple of three places in the Bible in the New Testament that says God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to faith in Christ. I have people question me that about that. As a matter of fact, a good friend of mine called me the other day, and we had a conversation while I was driving down the road for about 30 minutes about that topic. If, if God's not willing that any should perish, why do any perish? It's a good question. Because the will of God is pretty powerful. Have you ever, have you ever had a double mind? The Bible says a double-minded mind, a double-minded man is unstable. Double-minded mind. Double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And all of us know what it means to be double-minded about things. That sometimes we have a desire about a certain subject or about a certain topic, and we want this, but then on the other hand, we realize, well, that might not be the best thing to do, and we have a, a double will. Do you think God sometimes can say, well, I'm not willing that any should perish, because that comes from my heart. 
That, that, that is who I am on the inside. I, I love, 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 love people. I don't want them to die. I don't want them to perish. That's not my will. And yet I have another will. That will has to do with my glory. My glory is more important. The glory, would you agree with that? That the glory of God is more important than mankind's will? Much less God's other will that says, I love humanity so much, I don't want them to die and go to hell. I've made a way for them. If they will, I wish they, I pray, I hope, I, I would love for them to repent and come. Uh, if they're bound by sin, I understand that and they're not going to be able to. But still, my heart bleeds for them. And yet, if I save everybody on the planet, then I'll be robbed. Of the glory that I get for being just and holy and righteous. So I will let them go their way, even though it breaks my heart. I will let them go their way and choose what it is they choose. I know that none would choose me if I didn't move in their hearts and draw them to myself. And I'll do that because if I didn't, I would not be glorified by being gracious and merciful. We have a loving and kind and gracious and merciful God. But we also have a holy and wrathful and vengeful God that will allow wrath to come into our life. Every tub is going to sit on its own bottom. I'm not going to pay you for your sin. You're not going to pay for my sin. But you will stand before God and give an account of your life and what you did with the opportunities that you have. And you have a bona fide, genuine opportunity to come to Christ. To give Him your heart and your life. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but would be pleased that every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of the planet repent and return from his wickedness and his ways and live. You look again at verse 23. I have no pleasure at all. No pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord. And I have no pleasure that they would not return or should not return from his ways and live. But then you look at verse 20. Well, let's, why skip one? Read verse 24 and 25. But, but when the righteous turneth away from his uh, righteousness... And that righteous person that has turned away from holiness and righteousness and committeth iniquity and doeth according to all the abominations that the wicked man doeth, shall he live? Shall, shall his righteousness that he hath done, shall, shall, he not, shall it not be mentioned in his trespass that he hath trespassed and in his sin that he hath sinned? In them shall he die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord's not equal. You're not fair, God. Hear now, O house of Israel. Is not my way equal? Or not your ways unequal? You know what God is saying there? My ways are not your ways. My ways are higher than your ways. I have a better view. I have a better understanding. I have a little more light than you do. You say that it's not fair for me to move in one person's heart and to give them grace and to allow others to receive justice. 
You know nothing of the holiness of God. You know little of the Word of God. There are men standing behind pulpits today saying that man's will is more powerful than God's will. I say that's insanity and borderline blasphemous. I say that we had better wake up and see who we are. Stop pointing a finger at our environment. Well, it's because my mom and my daddy and the Garden of Eden where I was raised and, and all of the things that took place in my childhood when I was molested and I had, oh, you know, you don't know what I've been through. You don't know what I've gone through. It doesn't matter. God died for sin. God expects you to live for Him. Let's pray. Father, we love You. Help us, God, to understand that conversion is the way unto life. That we are dead in sin and trespasses. And we must be converted. Change our direction. Change our hearts. Change our minds. Change our decision-making process about what is important and what is not. God put you on the top of the list of what is. Lord, we'll give you the glory for that. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Can I ask you to take a